Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. Today on Talking Biotech, it's a little bit different than the normal type of discussion we have. Uh, Recently, I was at a meeting where I had the opportunity to discuss food and farming issues on an international scale. And one of the people I met there really made an impression because of the work that she and her organization are doing uh, in the area of taking care of prenatal and neonatal nutrition and how this has such a profound impact on the health and well-being, not of those children, but also the societies they can contribute to. So I welcome today the Executive Director of Thousand Days, uh, Lucy Martinez-Sullivan. Hi, Lucy. Hey, Kevin. It's great to be here. Yeah, this is really, really fun. I'm so glad we were able to do this again. Let's start out by asking the obvious question. So your organization is called 1,000 Days, and so why is it called 1,000 Days? Uh, so I get asked this question a lot. Uh, so Thousand Days, the name of our organization, uh, actually comes from a uh, particular window of time that was identified uh, back in 2008, actually, uh, by the British medical journal, The Lancet. Uh, and there was a special series on maternal child undernutrition. And they identified this critical window. Uh, at the time, it was not called the, the Thousand Day window. It was actually called the minus nine month to 24 month window. Uh, and that, of course, uh, speaks to pregnancy and uh, through a child's uh, second birthday, um, when nutrition actually has a really powerful impact on uh, the development of a child's brain, uh, the development of a child's immune system, uh, and uh, his or her physical growth. Uh, and they realized that the absence of good nutrition during that minus nine month, a 24 month window, uh, had really uh, irreversible. Uh, impacts uh, on a child's uh, health and well-being. Um, and later, uh, we coined the term thousand days to talk about that minus nine month to 24 month window. Uh, and it's really uh, stuck and captured the imagination of, of many people uh, actually throughout the world. Yeah, it's a lot less clunky than minus nine to plus 24. Uh, that's for sure. Yes. <laughs> but it, it does. It really does make you think. I mean, I I know when I first heard it, I was doing the math and thinking, well, thousand days around childbirth. But to think that you actually are two years beyond 
birth, but also those nine months leading into it. And where, where have um, what really brought you to the organization, or or you actually created the organization? I, I think right is that correct? Yeah, I helped found the organization, and so um, the Thousand Days really began actually as a project of the U.S. government and and uh, the Irish government, along with many partners, to bring uh, greater attention to this age old problem of malnutrition uh, because of the science. The science that had identified this this critical window, thousand day window of opportunity from pregnancy through a child's second birthday, and say, you know what, we actually have a thousand days to act. We know what to do. We we know the the things that work uh, to make sure that children get the right nutrition they need for proper brain development, proper growth, and we can actually tackle this problem. We can actually undo a lot of uh, the damage um, that is done by malnutrition if we focus on mothers and children. Uh, so it was really a, a, a fantastic opportunity, and at the time, um, the then Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, was the one that really shined that, that sort of international spotlight on the issue. Uh, and I think it captured a lot of attention. Uh, so Thousand Days as an organization, we are an advocacy organization. So we are interested in promoting greater action and investment in nutrition and really making sure that the world knows about the science uh, around the Thousand Day window and how critically important it is. Um, but also, of course, that they know about what needs to be done uh, so that we can make sure that every child, uh, everywhere um, they're born, uh, has a healthy first thousand days because the impacts are really uh, quite um, long-term and, and powerful. And where is most of your work focused? Is it in the developing world or pretty much everywhere? Well, uh, we like to say everywhere babies are born. Uh, so... We, when we started out, uh, when I founded the, the organization uh, back in uh, 2010, 2011, uh, we primarily focused on undernutrition in the developing world. As you, you, know, you think about sort of countries in sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia or even parts, very poor parts of Latin America, uh, you know, countries that, you know, their low-income populations there um, aren't getting kind of the calories that they need, the, the, the access to nutritious foods that they need, um, and that um, you know, quickly we realized um, that the need for good nutrition, especially in the first thousand days, is universal. And the sad fact is that, you know, low-income communities in high-income countries like the U.S. also uh, are vulnerable to the effects of, of poor nutrition. Uh, so our work really now is is everywhere. We, we just uh, started focusing on some efforts here in the United States and uh, launched a report recently that basically makes the case for why good nutrition in the first thousand days matter and takes a look at the nutritional health of our own American infants and toddlers uh, and then has offers some suggestions for, uh, for how we tackle some of the issues that we're facing here in this country. And when you talk about the issues, the health issues associated with either the developing world or here, are there some common aspects but that that are shared do you see some trends that really can be remedied in both places with a common approach yeah absolutely and so when we think about the thousand day windows as we said we it starts in pregnancy uh so starting in pregnancy it's really important uh that women have access to to prenatal care um, and this, we see this the world over, that it matters the world over. High-quality prenatal care ensures that uh, mom has a healthy pregnancy and then, of course, healthy outcomes for babies. Um, we need to make sure that women are entering pregnancy nutritionally healthy, ready to have a, a baby, and at a healthy weight. And what do we mean by that? Well, there's sort of a Goldilocks zone of weight gain during pregnancy. We want to make sure that 
um, she's, mom isn't gaining too much uh, or that mom isn't gaining too little. And of course, in parts of the developing world, um, women entering pregnancy underweight um, creates a situation where the growth of the baby is restricted in, in utero, um, which sets the stage for um, you know, poor birth outcomes and actually long-term ramifications um, in terms of the health and development of that child. In other parts of the world, the U.S. included, um, you know, women are entering pregnancy increasingly overweight or obese, and that also has really important consequences uh, for a developing child. Um, if a mom also gains too much weight during pregnancy, um, that is also problematic from a health standpoint. You know, we're seeing kind of this intergenerational transmission of obesity from mom to baby. And so it's really important um, that, that mom is sort of in that Goldilocks zone, is getting good quality prenatal care. Once the baby is born, really the, the science tells us that the best possible nutrition uh, that a child can get is, is breast milk. Uh, yet, you know, too many children don't actually get the benefits of breast milk. Um, it's actually estimated that about 800,000 children a year, babies actually, many of them die as a result of suboptimal breastfeeding practices, which means basically that uh, moms aren't able to um, exclusively breastfeed their child for the first six months, and that means no, nothing else, no water, no other foods besides breast milk. Um, and, and breast milk is, if you think about it, it's really nature's superfood. It, it really provides all the, uh, you know, the health and nutritional benefits that a, that a baby needs early in his or her life. And so we really, we work a lot on ensuring that, uh, that moms are supported to, to breastfeed optimally throughout the world, here in the U.S. and globally. And then once a child starts eating uh, solid foods around the age of six months, and of course, on through early childhood, it's really important that the quality of that food um, is, is very nutrition. So high in iron, um, high in other micronutrients and, and proteins and fats, because really that, that uh, nutrition fuels a child's brain development, of course, starting in utero. But when you think about how energetic toddlers are uh, and how much they grow, um, you know, you really realize the, the importance that, uh, that good food and, and nutrition play in that early window. Um, so, you know, it's pretty universal uh, what a child needs, what a mom and a baby needs uh, throughout uh, his, uh, his first thousand days. And it really does uh, really kind of beg to answer the next question is, how much does that Goldilocks zone or child being born in that Goldilocks zone how does it really play into the long-term health effects? Like as they proceed through puberty and into adulthood, how do like uh, deficiencies in the womb translate to larger-scale health issues as an adult? Yeah. Well, you know, unfortunately, we 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 know from the evidence that uh, that nutritional deficiencies during pregnancy have a real um, you know, sort of long-term impact on a child's health and, and development as well. So it's also the brain development. There's a lot going on uh, in that nine months in, in the womb, and, and brain development is, is kind of a huge piece of that. So we think of um, folic acid, which is a, a nutrient that moms need actually, you know, before they become pregnant um, to ensure that the, uh, the, the baby's neural tube um, starts to develop properly. And, and folic acid deficiencies need, lead to uh, neural tube defects, which, of course, have you know, a, a, an incredibly damaging effect uh, on a child's. 
Um, iron deficiency during pregnancy is also something that, that impacts brain development. We talked a little bit about fetal growth restriction during, during pregnancy. And uh, there's an estimate that, you know, that shows that 20%, something around 20% of stunting, so stunted development, um, actually happens before a baby's born, so happens in utero. So if we can if we can tackle, um, you know, the problem of, of of poor nutrition during pregnancy, you know, we we're we're part of the way there. Um, you know, the 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 science around um, things like low birth weight, uh, you know, how much a baby weighs when when he or she is born is really interesting because, um, you know, the what it shows is that you know m- maternal nutrition during pregnancy and other maternal habits during pregnancy actually affect, of course, the, the how. Um, you know, how heavy a, a baby is uh, when he or she is born. And low birth weight babies are really at greater risk for long-term health and developmental problems. Um, you know, low birth weight babies have, um, you know, higher risk of obesity, heart disease, type 2 diabetes uh, later in life. And there's also a, a strong connection between low birth weight and, and cognitive development. Um, you know, there's a correlation between the the weight of a child at birth and actually uh, the education educational outcomes um uh you know there's a there's a terrific study that showed sort of that correlation between neonatal health and i.e birth weight and sat scores later in life so really i think we're, we're starting to understand um a lot more about the impacts of of good nutrition during pregnancy and how critical uh birth outcomes are to the long-term health and development of, of people really no, that's really good. I, you really framed the problem well. And what we'll do is we'll take a short break here. And when we come back on the other side, we'll talk about how your organization actually addresses the problem and uh, what are the specific mechanisms. We're talking to Lucy Martinez-Sullivan, who is the Executive Director of Thousand Days. And we'll be right back with more Talking Biotech. If you've been reading on the Internet lately, you know that the question has been raised about how the Talking Biotech podcast is funded. I can see why. I mean, this would come up again and again. It's a high-quality, professionally produced podcast like this. must depend on deep pockets from some major agricultural concern. I'm not sure they're getting your sarcasm on that. I, I certainly can vouch for the fact that this is a volunteer effort. As the booth announcer for the Talking Biotech podcast, I get a lousy cup of coffee and my pick of the donuts from the box that Kevin doesn't want. That's it. But that's okay. This enterprise is not about making a buck. It's about sharing science. The podcast is 100% funded by Folda personally. And no outside funding is considered. Go ahead, try us, send us a check for a million dollars, and see if you don't get it right back. The real payment for the effort is the flood of kind words, the growing numbers of downloads, and the great questions that we get from listeners like you. Thank you for listening, and now back to the podcast. My name's Chelsea Boonstra, and welcome to the Boonstra Report, where we talk about all things agriculture. Today, it's October 10th and Thanksgiving in Canada, and today I have a lot to be thankful for. I am thankful for the family that raised me and the farm that has given me opportunity 
not only to be a part of the agriculture industry, but also one day farm and take over something that has meant so much to me. Agriculture is one of the most important industries out there. And I'm not just saying that because I am a farmer, but because truly without it, we would not be able to survive and just do everyday things. I know it is not the American Thanksgiving, but the next time you're eating, sit there and thank a farmer because today some farmers are missing meals with their families so that they can be feeding yours. Be sure to follow me at Forever Farm Girl on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and WordPress.com. Thank you. So we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast today, taking a little different look at the issues of childhood nutrition and the importance of prenatal and neonatal uh, nutrition in the long-term development of good adults and maybe even the societies they they contribute to. And this being an international problem of malnourishment or overnutrition during um, this critical period of development. And with me, I have the executive director from Thousand Days, Lucy Martinez-Sullivan, and we're talking about her efforts in conjunction with the organization. So, Lucy, I guess the other um, thing to think about is you've really framed this well, that there's this Goldilocks zone where mothers need to have ample nutrition, but maybe not too much, and that there are specific problems that do manifest as long-term issues when children are undernourished during that first thousand days after conception. And how do you solve the problem? I mean, how does your organization help to actually create the change in those mothers? Yes, yeah, so that's a great question, Kevin. Um, I think that for us, you know, the the first part of the uh, the attempt to solve the problem is is making sure that people understand the problem, and so we we have to do a little bit of education and awareness building around why nutrition in the first thousand days matter, and you know, even what thousand days is, um, and why it's so important to focus. Because you know, it's interesting. A lot of people that we talk to, um, you know, and, and we talk to a whole range of, of different folks from, you know, policymakers here in the U.S. to overseas, to health ministers, to physicians. Um, and, you know, when we talk about nutrition, they, you know, they immediately think of their own nutrition. Or when we talk about children's nutrition, they immediately think of, oh, yeah, my kid in school, uh, you know, has access to, to, to good lunch. Um, and we, you know, we have to do a lot of work, actually, to, to get people to think earlier, uh, to think that you know good nutrition and the and the impacts of good nutrition actually start uh, in the womb with mom. Uh, so education awareness raising that's step one. It's defining kind of how what the problem is, what it looks like, who it affects. The second piece of that would be um, really kind of looking at the system. So what is making kind of good nutrition a, a problem for people uh, in terms of you know being able to access. Um, you know, high quality, nutritious foods. And we take sort of a systems view. And so is it the food systems? Is it the healthcare systems that, that are preventing, um, you know, women from um, from having healthy pregnancy? Um, is it the systems of social support? Is it cultural norms? Uh, so a cultural and social norms around infant feeding are very powerful, very strong. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done uh, really to understand those social norms and, and try if they're, especially if they're, if they're um, you know, damaging. So things like, you know, throwing out the, the colostrum, which is mom's first milk. Um, and that colostrum, um, you know, when she starts lactating, when a baby is born, is packed 
packed with antibodies and and really good stuff that helps um, you know, baby's gut um, and and really serves in, in many respects as as a baby's first vaccine. Well, in many cultures of the world, that's dirty milk, and the, the mom is encouraged by healthcare professionals or by her midwife or in laws. To, to discard it. And so we have to figure out how to tackle some of those social norms. And we see that even here in this country, um, you know, with, uh, with when to start feeding babies and, and what to start feeding babies. Uh, so there's, there's certainly a lot of work to do. And can you think of any particular examples where your organization has had some really profound impact on a specific situation? Um, yeah, I mean, so we are an advocacy organization, and it's always hard to measure advocacy impact. And what does advocacy mean? Well, it means really championing uh, the the solutions that you want to see put into place. Uh, and so, you know, one of the things that, that we're quite interested in is, you know, that we we know what works. We know that um, the the programs that work, uh, especially in, in in other parts of the world where there's been tremendous results. Um, when you think about countries like Peru, who had, you know, 31 percent of their children were stunted, which means you know they they suffered from chronic uh, undernourishment, never reaching their their full potential. Uh, their brains were literally stunted by by poor nutrition. And that country, um, thanks to a lot of the political commitment uh, and the work uh, that many did and, and some really smart, innovative programs, uh, was able to cut that rate, the rate of chronic malnutrition in half to just 14%. So we think when we think about what sort of the U.S. can do uh, as a leader, really, in the world, um, you know, the U.S. helps support a lot of these programs that we see in other countries, and it's it's so vital, uh, so our work, a lot of our work centers on ensuring that the U.S. government can, can maintain that leadership and really, um, you know, continue its, its investment in these, in these programs that target uh, mothers and young children in the thousand-day window. And we're able to see that, you know, when we started, you know, the U.S. government was um, basically spending about $90 million on some of these programs, which sounds like a lot of money, but in, in sort of the, the overall context of the U.S. government bu- budget, it's tiny. Um, and we've been able to see over the last several years, thanks to our efforts and the efforts of our partners, that that budget grow. Um, and, you know, this is less than one percent of the U.S. government um, budget that is spent on foreign aid. And about one percent of that is actually spent on uh, these these kinds of programs that target moms and babies in the thousand day window. Uh, but when you realize that 45 percent of all child deaths are due uh, to malnutrition. 45% of all child deaths, children under five, and all of these deaths are preventable. Um, you know, you start to really realize that that more needs to be done and, and, and more funding from, from not just from the U.S., but from countries all over the world needs to be dedicated to improving nutrition for um, the world's most vulnerable. Yeah, that's, that's the part that blows me away is that, you know, these are, so 45% are, could be solved. And, and, and our, it, it, that's, I mean, I'm, you can see I'm even a little bit speechless by that. It's, uh, mm-hmm. these are such cases where just some, where the awareness, where some intervention, where some solutions could have profound impacts. And, um, and, and that's what always amazes me about this. Um, you know, for the cost of a couple of cruise missiles, you know, how we can have substantial mm-hmm. change somewhere. Um, and uh, I guess the the other real big question that ties in you've you've discussed malnutrition, undernutrition. What about overnutrition, especially as it applies in the in the industrialized world? Yeah, well, 
Um, yeah, I actually don't like the term overnutrition because, you know, a, a person can't necessarily be overnourished. They can be overfed, they can overeat, they can have an excess of, of calories in, um, you know, in what they consume. Um, so, and, and the problem with overnutrition, and I'm so glad you're asking the question, and um, because, you know, the, using that term basically says, oh, if, if you have enough food, you know, or you have too much food, well, you know, there's no problem there. When in reality, we know that actually when people are struggling with overweight or obese, chances are that in many cases they're also struggling, believe it or not, with undernutrition. They don't, they may have an excess of calories, too much calorie, too much food, but that, those calories are empty calories or they're low quality calories and low quality diets. So you can literally be overweight, obese, have too much food in your, too many calories, excessive calories in your diet, but not have the nutrients like iron in your diet or, um, you know, essential fatty acids in your diet, things that are really important. And oh, by the way, extremely important uh, to young children. We see increasingly in in the U.S., absolutely, but even in, in, in lower and middle income countries throughout the world, the problem of obesity actually becoming a massive, massive issue for young children and really for the population. Diet is actually the leading cause of premature death around the world. Diet. It used to be infectious diseases, and now it's what we're eating that is really driving us to an early grave. But again, this is this is critical for the population for all you know the population the entire population's health. But it's especially critical for young children. A young child who, by the age of five, is suffering with overweight or obesity, that child is probably more than likely going to suffer from overweight and obesity his or her entire life. Not to mention diseases like heart disease and diabetes. And that early programming of obesity in a child starts starts in the thousand days, starts very early on during pregnancy, infancy, and early childhood. And we know that children in America, unfortunately, when we look sort of at what's going on in our own country, the diets of our toddlers and our infants looks like the diet of American adults, where you have French fries being the number one vegetable consumed by American one-year-olds. Wow. Well, yeah, I appreciate you helping me reshape my thinking on, on the idea of overnutrition, but um, it really blows me away to hear statistics like that with the French fries being the I didn't even know that was a vegetable. <laughs> so since the, one of the major topics we talk about in this podcast is biotechnology, we know that there have been solutions that have been presented for many places in the world, such as enhanced beta-carotene rice or bananas, cassava. How, how does your organization feel about that? Or is that legitimately a source of nutrition or are there better solutions? Yeah, I think when you're dealing with a problem of this scale that we're dealing with, um, where you have, you know, so many children undernourished, one in four children throughout the world are stunted, 25%, right? Uh, as a result of, of chronic undernutrition, you really need to sort of bring all solutions to bear and think about, you know, sort of everything that needs to be done that can be done. Um, to make sure that children have the healthiest first thousand days. Um, so one of the one of the interventions that we are very interested in in watching um, and and seeing what the what the impacts are 
um, is uh, is biofortification. I think you referenced this, but you know certainly breeding uh, nutrients into crops, crops and foods that that are commonly eaten throughout many parts of the world. Um, you know we have to look at that as a as a possible solution. Um, you know, we one of our partners is actually an organization called Harvest Plus, uh, and they're the leaders in this field. They're the leaders in in, in um, looking at how biofortified crops can really improve the nutritional health of of populations. Um, and you know, when we think about some of the the diseases that you know we've of course eradicated or the nutritional deficiencies that we are not in as a country in the U.S. we don't have to deal with things like vitamin A deficiencies, which is incredibly devastating and can even lead to blindness. Um, you know, breeding in things like vitamin A into cassava. Um, the sweet potatoes, right, um, that are commonly eaten in places like Mozambique. I mean, this is, you know, this is this is powerful stuff and I think could really have a, a, an important long-term impact on how we ensure that, again, that every child has a healthy first thousand days and that they're getting the nutrition they need in order to be healthy and develop properly. Well, that, that's really great. I know that we're, I actually am reaching out to Harvest Plus and would like to have them on maybe in a couple weeks um, I love the work they're doing just with traditional breeding and getting uh, beta carotene into things like uh, into world's food staples. It's fantastic. And, you know, just for what it's worth, as a scientist, I mean, I'm looking at the plant breeding efforts that happen here in the States. And here, here's kind of my dream, and maybe you can help mobilize this with me, that we see these plant breeding programs who make these beautiful plants that produce a jillion strawberries or a jillion blueberries or you know outstanding potatoes but they're not quite market size or they are you know maybe a little funny and funny shape that the consumer wouldn't accept yet they stand up to all the diseases and they're really nutritious it doesn't fit the industrialized world definition of what a fruit or vegetable is so it's discarded and I would love to see a program in place where breeders could take something that's high yielding and disease resistant and and, uh, and just a plant that has great vigor and donate it and, and see how it could be trialed somewhere in the developing world. Because, you know, it's the old one person's treasure is another person's, you know, cast offs. And, uh, I, I, you know, it's just something I think about all the time. And I just mentioned it here because in this context of this conversation, maybe somebody out there will say, ah, here, let's start that. So throw it out yeah yeah and it's a, it's it's a you know it's both the sort of the supply side and the demand side right um so we you know we do have to create the demand for for healthy food for good food and you know and maybe part of that is you know our traditional view of what you know sort of constitutes a, a beautiful um fruit or a vegetable you know maybe we need to tweak that and it's interesting because i think the the consumer acceptability and the consumer for preferences is something that i think increasingly um you know we have to think about and and look at uh, because that's going to drive behaviors purchasing behaviors and it's certainly going to drive health behaviors uh so when we think about getting nutrition into the bellies of moms and young children um, you know, we have to make sure that we're taking their sort of preferences into account as well. So we've covered a lot of ground here, but the one thing we haven't really answered is what are the long-term impacts of having this first thousand days satisfied? How does it help us make a better situation for everybody in terms of social equity later on? That's a great question. I'm so glad you asked it um, because, you know, it's not just... 
uh, about the science that shows um, that, you know, nutrition in the first thousand days really matter for long-term health and development. But there's actually an, uh, an immense body of economic research that's been done uh, that shows uh, that investing in nutrition in the first thousand days actually has tremendous uh, benefits for economies. Uh, so the World Bank um, and other economists have done uh, the research that shows that the impact of, of poor nutrition in the first thousand days, when you take that up to sort of a, a societal level or macroeconomic level, uh, you see that countries um, lose as much as 11% of their GDP uh, as a result of uh, child stunting and malnutrition. And we know this because, you know, there's been studies that have done longitudinal studies on what happens when, you know, you, you, you ensure that children get the right nutrition early in life. Um, and you look at sort of the long-term, their long-term, um, you know, sort of job prospects, their educational outcomes, and you kind of extrapolate that out, and you see that, you know, the, the, the costs are enormous. On the flip side, the benefits, of course, are enormous. And one um, economist, actually, this this group of economists um, through the, the what's known as the Copenhagen Consensus, uh, they they sort of had an imaginary seventy five billion dollars uh, that they can spend on anything to make the world a better place, and you know they they kind of do this every few years this analysis, and consistently consistently over the past I would say eight years they have ranked nutrition in the first thousand days early childhood nutrition as one of the top priorities. It's, it's basically how policymakers really should be spending their budgets. And they've compared things, they've compared nutrition to, to things, you know, other things um, and other interventions. Um, and it's just, it's amazing to, to, to me to see that, um, you know, that the leading economists throughout the world are also uh, calling for, for this kind of investment, investment in children's futures, investment in nutrition. It, it seems so simple, doesn't it? I mean, you know, whether you're talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs or Norman Barlog saying that you can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. And, yeah. and uh, so it, it, it seems so simple. But, uh, you know, yeah. I really applaud your efforts in making the awareness side of this um, increase and really illuminating some of the facets of this that maybe we don't think about. Um, one question that people always like to know is, is how is your organization funded? Like, who are your major um, contributors and how can others give if they would like to support your work? Yes, thanks for that. Um, we are very fortunate to be funded um, primarily by foundations. Um, we, we are funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, the David and Lucille Packard Foundation, and the Kellogg Foundation. Uh, so we're very proud that those three, um, you know, philanthropic institutions, um, you know, help us uh, do the work that we're doing. Of course, um, you know, we we absolutely welcome donations um, from from any and all individuals, and not just donations, but voice. Um, you know, we we do a lot of uh, work to make sure that this uh, this issue is out there, um, and we, we we drive people to petitions to sign petitions in support of different. Uh, initiatives. Uh, so it's, you know, the, the money is important, uh, but so is uh, the ability to use the, the a person's voice um, to call for greater action and investment uh, in this critical 1,000-day window. And you can find information about us, the organization, how to donate, how to get involved uh, on our website, 1000days.org, spelled out. 
And what about uh, social media? Are you present on Twitter or Facebook? Yeah, so both, of course. Uh, so on Twitter, it's at Thousand Days. Uh, spelled it out again, um, and uh, and there you'll you know you'll find a lot of uh, great links to to different articles around this issue, um, and on our Facebook page, a little bit of a different audience. Um, we've been really um, targeting uh, moms in their thousand day window on Facebook, as we know many new parents like to use Facebook to post uh, pictures of their babies, and we thought what better place than to talk about this issue uh, to an audience of parents, new parents especially. Um, and and let them know what we're doing. Let them know how to get involved. We've done you know some terrific uh, petitions thanks thanks to to Facebook and 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 some of the work actually that we've done uh, directly with Facebook themselves um, to to run a petition um, on on different issue areas. The the one that probably garnered the most signatures, over 130,000 signatures from Americans um, in I think just four months, was a petition on paid parental leave, ensuring that uh, that the U.S. Uh, can finally um, implement a national paid family leave policy. We are the only industrialized country in the world uh, that has no policy uh, for parents to take time off um, uh, during the health. Uh, excuse me, um, uh, at the the time of birth of their of their child. Well, Lucy Martinez Sullivan, thank you so much uh, for joining me today on Talking Biotech. Uh, Lucy's the executive director of Thousand Days. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Kevin. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. 